0: Welcome to episode 27 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. Today I'm joined by Tony Tompas, who is the first team physio at Aberdeen. Tony joined us on the podcast to talk about ACL rehabilitation and a specific case of um, working with a player at the club He's released a great video on Twitter. So right away through the episode, we keep referencing back to the video. And I will put the link to the video in the show notes. You can go and have a a watch of the video because it is a really good insight into the work that Tony did with the player up at Aberdeen. He speaks about the different phases of rehab that he used with the player and also how he integrated a player-led approach So he didn't just prescribe the work that they were going to do. He was in constant contact with the player to come up with the best um, protocol to get him back playing and get him back fit. He also talks about, which is the title of this episode, how he took a CEO approach to the rehab. I thought that was really interesting. So it was great to speak to Tony. Um, He gives loads of great insight into how he approaches injuries like this and also um, the tracking that they do up there at Aberdeen that allowed them to get him back playing that little bit quicker um, and it was quite surprising, he talked about it in the episode in terms of the actual time frame that they were able to get this bit, this player back fit and playing so it was great to speak to Tony I hope you enjoyed the episode as always, give us some feedback on the episode let us know how you found it I know Tony's really keen to um, interact with people and see um, what, ha- what approach that you would take with your players. Um, so please do get in touch. And as always, subscribe to the podcast and please share this episode to get it out to as many people as possible. Enjoy the episode with Tony. Welcome to the Fitness Federation podcast. Today we're joined by Tony Tompas. He's the first team physiotherapist at Aberdeen Tony, how's things going?
1: Oh, good. Really good.
0: Um, you just said, night last just said night. you're enjoying life up in sunny Scotland.
1: Yeah, beautiful. It's just started raining, so if you can hear it in the background, that's exactly what it is. wet, windy, raining, just the same as being back home in Manchester, actually. So. <laughs> hey,
0: Manchester's glorious today. <laughs> of course that's it is. It's glorious. <laughs> um, no, I really appreciate you coming on, mate. It's great to get... Um, the podcast recorded with you yeah, and we're going to focus on a real specific topic topic today in terms of ACL injuries. so it would be really good to get deep dive into that and get your knowledge because I know you've got loads to speak about. So just kick us off, mate, just go into um, your background, uh, where you've been, the job roles you've had and up to current day, what you're
1: doing um, at the moment. Yeah, no worries. Um, so initially I did an undergraduate in sports rehabilitation at Bolton Uni. So, obviously, I did my three years there, graduated, found work quite difficult to get into full time at, at that time, which is obviously what, looking at maybe eight, nine years ago now. So, I went and did my master's in uh, physiotherapy at Teesside Unit. And basically, as soon as I graduated from there, I was offered a job at Accrington Stanley. So, I did youth team physio for 12 months there, kind of working mostly on my own typical category three head of academy, sports science and medicine. So trying to do everything on my own, um, which was difficult at the time So I was straight out of uni, but obviously learned a lot. Um, learned to work with limited equipment, stuff like that. But then, thankfully, a year later, I got a great opportunity to move to Nottingham and work at Notts County Football Club. Uh, I know you've had Johnny on before, Johnny Wilson, so I was able to work with Johnny and uh, Becky Knight really close. So they were the two first-team physios at the time, and I learned ridiculous amount under them and then they kind of shaped how I've become as a physio um big focus on CPD um always looking to progress and yeah I kind of I left Knox County after about 15 or 16 months and I probably left maybe prematurely because I was learning so much but the draw of moving back home to to Rochdale and I so moved to Wigan, so I then moved to Wigan after 15 months at Notts County to work with the split role. It was kind of academy work in the evenings, um, and then under-23s or under-21s, I can't remember what they were clusters at the time, uh, during the day, uh, and then that progressed to a, a split role with first team and under-23s at the new training ground. So I did that for just over, I think it was a year or again, 15 months, before being kind of recommended for a role up at St. Johnston. So I did 18 months at St. Johnston as head of medical um, with the first team, really enjoyed it. Um, We finished fourth in the first season uh, when I was there and thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, But again, it started to feel like I was working in a silo again, just because it was a small department in terms of sports science and medicine was a youth team physio, but we kind of trained separately, first team S&C coach. But again, just because there was only the two of us, it was kind of one was on the pitch, one was in the gym, and it was very difficult. So when the opportunity came up at Aberdeen Football Club to work with Adam Stokes and Graham Kirk, so Adam's the head of medical, Kirk is the head of S&C Sports Science, the draw was just too much. So uh, I've been there now for just over a year, um, there was the draw of new training facilities, which are coming in next season, the draw of the kind of putting forward research and actually doing clinical research. And that's where we're at now um, in terms of presenting this case study on this ACL repair that we've done.
0: So we spoke um, well a few days ago now about... The topics that we could cover and you brought up a few obviously common injuries with players and you said obviously about the ACL and the work that you've been doing I thought it'd be really good to focus a whole episode on it and, and really go into detail on it which we haven't yet done I know Johnny uh, did touch on it a little bit but only briefly so I thought it'd be really good to to go in um, in more detail with you so to kick things off well let's go into the initial stages and we are going to link a lot of this in to the work that you you're doing and done and also the video footage that you're going to have out on twitter and we'll be linking loads of linkedin for this so the guys can go and check it out because it is that the video's quality and it gives a real good insight but just start us off mate how when a player goes into surgery just talk us through the basics basics of what's happening and also your approach um in your role when the player comes out of surgery in the first few days of recovery
1: yeah sure i mean very briefly i'll I'll touch on that very small period between injury realization that you have ruptured your acl and surgery because for us that was 10 days so the player injured it in pre-season um typical example of how you tear your ACL um, boot stuck in the turf it was an astro bitch on a very sunny dry hot day um, his foot was planted knee fell into kind of dynamic valgus knee position internally rotated at the hip so the kind of knee in and toe out position uh, which is the most common and, and felt a popping sensation and, and was unable to continue so you speak about the first couple of days after surgery that's not actually that bad a part it's the couple of days after the initial injury we got the MRI report the next day which confirmed ACL rupture um so that's a that's the most challenging period I think psychologically because you've got to give the player all the advice and all your experience on on what to do in the future because it's not some people don't return from ACL injuries. Now, that's changed massively over the last 10, 20 years and that a lot of people are returning from ACL, but certainly not a lot of them are returning to the pre-injury levels. So we have to kind of break that news to him that there's a increased risk of early onset Aware, have to let him know that there's surgical options and there's non-surgical options, so he could choose if he wanted and felt strong enough to go conservative. But we had to give him... Everything that we can offer as a medical department for then him to make the the key decisions because it's his career at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, kind of during that ten day period, we met the consultant, recommended um, surgical repair reconstruction. Um, so I know I'm I'm speaking to mostly fitness and SNC guys, so I don't want to. Um, got too much into the actual surgery but basically what the surgery that we got with uh, the player was an internal brace um, and that was done in Glasgow so the internal brace is basically it's a seatbelt to protect a reconstruction and repair of an injured ACL so traditionally the gold standard of ACL reconstruction is uh, to debride to get rid of the uh, residual ACL tissue without any attempt to repair the ligament um, despite the fact that sufficient tissue remains for a repair to be considered um, so what the uh, the brace does is you retain the ACL um, ligament from its femoral and its tibial attachment and you put this 2 millimeter, I think it is um Two millimeter polythylene tape through, and that's the internal brace, um, and then that allows the ACL to heal naturally rather than using a hamstring or using a full patella tendon uh, to act as a ligament. So the internal brace, it's not a, it's not a ligament itself. It's it's literally there just to allow sufficient healing of the ACL during repair. So it basically acts as a scaffold. Um, where the ligament grows through the lattice structure of the brace, supporting the re- regeneration and healing of the injured ACL. Um, so this means that for us, it's in it's retaining its natural tissue, so it's retaining its nerves and proprioceptive properties. Um, but again, just to kind of confirm, it's not a synthetic ligament. It just protects and supports the ligament during the early phase of recovery. Um, so that was done in Glasgow. And then coming back to your question, uh, which was, how do you speak to a player the next few days? Well, you have to give him confidence that we're going to plan the best possible ACL rehab um, so that he's got goals to hit. And that was the whole basis of the rehab. It was a task-based rehabilitation protocol. We weren't going off time. We weren't doing any guesswork. Everything was planned from, from basically the minute he injured his knee, we'd started to Engineer a macrocycle for him, uh, and how we were going to get him back to to fitness and back playing football as quickly and as safely as possible.
0: It was it was a very visual. Like, this show, this is all showed on the video, which we, we will link in. I, I know I keep saying that, but we will because it is it's a very easy um, thing to watch, and you get a lot of what Tony's talking about um, in terms of the surgery, but also the the rehab after it. Um, but what I think it's a good time to go into, like uh, you mentioned before, a little bit about psychology, and this stage is obviously going to be really key because, like you said, some players don't recover from this. So, what is your approach in this period, and how do you keep players on track?
1: Sure, um, obviously, I'm not a psychologist, I'm a, I'm a physio now. Being a physio, you've got to be highly empathetic, um, and now, thankfully, we had an athlete, and um the player in question was an athlete. It's not kind of, it's, it's not like, I, sh- I hope it doesn't mind me saying, he's not got all the skill in the world. He's, he's a left-sided centre-half. He's played for 15 years, over 350 league appearances, but he's done that because he's, he's a very fast, strong athlete. So that was a big thing for us. When we were planning his return to play in East us he wants to return as quickly as possible because he's in the final year of his contract it's happened early in the season. So we, his aim is when we give him the prognosis of it's between six and 12 months, and usually players return at nine months, he want, he was desperate for the six-month mark because the six-month mark would have meant that he returns just after the winter break, which we obviously have in Scotland from New Year to it's like the 21st to the 25th of January. So we have two or three weeks break. And that gives him a great opportunity to to shine for the second half of the season in a, in the last year of his contract. So we're not we're not trying to pick this player up. The player's picked up already, um, and we were very lucky to have that. Um, as well as that, a, a big thing for me is that he's teetotal, so he doesn't drink, which for me is huge in an injury because when when you've got a swollen knee and you're drinking, not only does it affect the swelling and stuff like that but you do things that you're probably not supposed to do whether it's dancing or running or you just knock it so this boy's teetotal he's fit he's strong he's motivated it's like the perfect recipe to really push him as a rehab Uh, push ourselves as physios and sports science staff as well um but we had to give him everything and and that's what we did um so in terms of psychology there was We're actually part of an ongoing research project which is looking at long-term injuries and uh, return to play, Um, but I I can't mind the title of that just yet, Um, but we did look at outcome measures for psychological readiness return to play, but that very much came at the end, so just before we return to training, and I think it was about three weeks after and then we'll do another one a couple of months later. Um, but in terms of psychology for the rehab, there was a paper came out um, just last year and it was actually just after we'd started this rehab protocol um, by Johnny King and, and the guys at Bournemouth, which was, I think the title Wanting to Improve Return to Sport Outcomes Following Injury, uh, Empower, Engage, Provide Feedback and Be Transparent. So it was a bit of an editorial in BGSM and it speaks about empowering the athlete to make decisions. Um And the reason for that is obviously a major limitation of traditional return to sport decisions have been have excluded the athlete. Um so we wanted to make sure that the athlete was the centre of all the decisions made. So it was like a CEO analogy, which which they speak about in the editorial. And it's really good and it was it's what we've done for a while kind of informally, but it was good to have this formally written down how we were going to do it. So it, it meant that we'd have re- regular discussions, pretty much weekly discussions about his rehab um, and what we were expecting of him. But there were honest discussions as well. If we didn't think he, were, he was ready to move on to the next stage, then he it, it just wasn't ready. And that frustrated him at times. But that was one thing we kept throughout. It was honesty. And he'd give us honest opinions on how he felt during the rehab. Whether he didn't like to do things, whether some things were sore, um, but as well as that, you then kind of think about engaging the athlete. So he's a part; he's studying part-time mechanical engineering. He's done that for the last four or five years. So we, it wasn't like it was just rehab focus. We considered things outside of the club as well, and it enabled him to to do some exams. So we'd swap days where he was due to do rehab to go and do his exams, or he needed a couple of days extra revision. So we'd go and do that, um, and then we'd always make up for it. I think in the paper it speaks about kind of a rehab holidays as well. That's not something we can offer at, at Aberdeen. We've just not got the staff to be able to do it. Um, but we were very inclusive of the athlete during the whole rehabilitation period, which I think uh, had a great bearing on his outcome.
0: And with... In terms of early on, still, what's your approach and what's your um, focus? I suppose in terms of movement quality, what movements are you prioritising?
1: Yeah, so the first part of um, the players rehab was was post stop recovery. So this, the aims of this are like your classic police protocols or police's place price so you're looking for optimal loading ice compression elevation look at mobilizing strategies because obviously he's he's on two elbow crutches when it comes to us after surgery you got to consider wound management uh, and pain management as well and so what we did throughout the rehab period was daily and weekly outcome measures so these were basically done to assess how he was coping with the exercises that were given um, and this whole task-based re- rehab protocol is by Harrington et al, 2013. It's a really good paper for ACL rehabilitations. So initially, um, you're looking at the most basic knee exercises. So that's literally flexion extension, um, ankle pumps. Uh, what else are you doing? you then doing muscle maintenance of other muscles. So bridging, sideline abduction, glute-based exercises, just to try and maintain strength of the other limbs whilst he's in a compromised position of being on, on his crutches, obviously. Um, but, yeah, the main focus of the post-op recovery uh, was basically getting full range of movement. Um, so I guess that's the side that a lot of s coaches won't see, which is the immediate aftermath. But it's very basic. It's reducing the swelling, it's making sure the player's got full range of movement, um, and you're reducing his pain as much as possible, and obviously progressing him from two elbow crutches to one elbow crutch to normal gait pattern. So we did a lot of kind of gait work during the first couple of weeks as well. I was getting used to walking again.
0: And what was your timeline on that, mate? Because I know you mentioned it in the video. I can't remember how many days it was that you were looking at to try and achieve gait with no
1: crutches? Yeah, I think it was very early on. So I think walking without crutches was five days at post-surgery, which is, I've not seen before, but uh, it's usually a lot longer than that. So he was off the crutches and walking with a normal pain-free gait after five days. And that was probably where we started to think this lad could do well with his rehab, like right? we could be onto something. Um, so, yeah, day five, he was off his crutches. And um, the other criteria we were looking at was full quads activation. But we basically reverse engineered everything. So, for the four phases that we had, so we had post-op recovery, progressive limb loading, unilateral load acceptance, and sport specific. So, for each of them phases, we had criteria to hit. So, for example, in the post-op recovery, normal symmetrical gait hamstring muscle activation as defined by a bilateral straight leg bridge, uh, glute muscle activation defined by a bilateral short lever bridge, and a squat to parallel. And we basically just reverse, once we knew the outcome measure, we reverse engineered everything. So how do we get this player to squat to parallel? Well, initially, it's squat 10 degrees, and that's all you work on because that's the range that that player's got at that time. And then you progress it and you bring the boxes down and down whilst at the same time working on bridging exercises, isometrics um, prior to concentric, eccentric motion of the bridge. Um, and then you've obviously got the effusion part, which is game-ready, compression, um, flexion-extension activities.
0: And when you progressed him on, obviously he was going through a lot of these different movements, and you can see the progressions on the video in terms of the squat squat mechanics and um, the single leg work you were doing as well. Yeah. But you also um, mentioned about using blood, uh, blood flow restriction as well. So obviously this is an area that's, that's building up and there's more and more research, research coming out about it all the time. But what were your
1: experiences with that and what were the benefits that you saw? Uh, so we started uh, to player on blood flow restriction training after phase one, so after course immediately post-op so we weren't including him immediately after just because of a bit of a yellow flag maybe just straight after surgery so we started that i think he completed his post-op phase in 19 days so just short of three weeks then we progressed into progressive limb loading, and basically once he was able to squat to parallel which was one of his final criteria to hit that's when we started to introduce some blood flow restriction training. So have you had anybody on to speak about blood flow yet? No, we haven't. No, so I'll give a brief overview. There's a couple of really good podcasts. I think Stephen Patterson's done one um, on the Percy podcast um, and that yeah. really goes into excellent detail of it. Um, so as a physio... I'll idea, a link you- of these in the notes yeah so I mean I've used blood flow restriction training for the last couple of years I think it was since since in Steven um like a CPD evening lecture um, and the idea of it is that obviously traditionally you would look to use seven a minimum of 70% of your one rep max to elicit strength hypertrophy kind of stimulus what you want but with blood flow restriction training, it's hypothesized that you only need to use about twenty to forty percent of your one rep max to elicit similar morphological and strength responses. So when you look when you're working with a player who is significantly compromised, which is obviously an ACL rehab, it means that we could get in similar benefits to traditional weightlifting, but with much less weight going through the knee. Um, so basically to to measure Blood flow restriction, we use these cuffs, and you look to use limb occlusive pressure. So, you do that by measuring the pulse, the most distal pulse once the cuff's on, and you pump it up. And once you occlude the most distal pulse, that's your limb occlusive pressure. So, you use that using like a Doppler ultrasound so you can hear the pulse. You pump it up, and when you can't hear that pulse any longer, that is your 100% limb occlusive pressure. But we obviously don't want to work at that because the the restriction on the cuff should be high enough to occlude venous return from the muscles, but low enough to maintain our arterial inflow into the muscle. So you work at between 50 and 80% of limb occlusive pressure. Uh, so that's what we did uh, initially. Blood flow restriction was added to low-intensity aerobic activity. So that was the bike. So he'd use the blood flow restriction on the bike, and he'd do it in cycles. So he'd cycle for five minutes, or he'd be occluded for five minutes at 70% limb occlusive pressure, and then have three minutes of reperfusion. And he'd continue to do that for three to four sets. Um, And that was his bike session. But you also use it during strength exercises as well. So initially it was straight leg raise uh, slide outs and I can't remember the other one it might have been your box squat as well
0: or was that later on
1: Uh, yeah well we then progressed onto squat knee extension leg press so he was doing all these exercises instead of having what he used to have on it which was 80 kilos 90 kilos big weights for his leg press and his squat he was now just doing the barbell but getting eliciting similar benefits so the way you you build your rep scheme up is we started at three sets of 15 building up to 75 reps so that was a set of 30 initially and then a minute rest and then three sets of 15 following that uh, and if you've ever tried blood flow restriction training it is painful to do your quads are bulging there's muscle swelling um and it is painful but that's that's where the response comes from so it's suggested that the hypoxic stimulus plays a role with blood flow restriction um with low load exercise um in terms of an accumulation of metabolites increased production in hypoxic state and limited removal of um the blood flow restriction itself that acts as a primary moderator of the anabolic response um so it's kind of increasing muscle cell swelling intramuscular anabolic and anti signalling. signaling um, so that's the physiology behind it and that's how it works and that's how we used it for the first maybe month to six weeks prior to moving on to traditional weightlifting uh, or traditional strength training should I say
0: and how did the player respond to it what did he make of it it was yeah
1: he hated it Like I'm not, I'm not going to lie he hated it but he enjoyed seeing his quads building back up because if you've ever had yeah. a, an ACL reconstruction, you lose quads so quickly. And for him as, a, as probably one of the strongest athletes in the squad, it was upsetting for him to see the big old quads decreasing in size because he's obviously not weight-bearing how he normally does it. He's not strength training the way he normally does. So the the kind of swelling effect, what he got from from the blood flow restriction training had bigger benefits for him uh, psychologically, I think, as well. Yeah.
0: And one thing I wanted to ask you as well is your approach to not only the injured leg, but the, the fit leg as well. So how would you approach that in terms of the
1: range of motion work and then the strength work as well? Sure. So the range of motion stuff, he didn't do on his right side um, just because, it was, and I'm talking for the first two or three weeks, because he's using that right leg to move majority, so he's going upstairs using his good leg, he's got full range of movement, we don't need to increase that, whereas for his injured leg he's ob- he obviously has a requirement to increase his range of movement um, but then when he'd started his strength, tra- strength training, he was obviously working both legs and I think we did it when he was doing his cuff work for his left leg he was doing his right leg traditional strength so when he was on the left on his so when he was on the leg press he would do leg press with the cuff on his left leg and do it as a single leg but then with his right leg he was doing his traditional really heavy um single leg work with the squat we used two cuffs so he was getting cuff work for both of them um and then his other exercise, which was step-ups, he did cuff work on both, so he just swapped the cuff over. Now, we do have two cuffs, but because you don't want it to be, you didn't want restriction of both at the same time, he just used used his left leg first. And then once he'd done his set, once he'd done his 75 reps, he then did it on his right leg as well. Um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a mix, really, um, with his good leg.
0: And were there any uh, asymmetries before the
1: injury? Uh, No, no, we didn't IKD testing. That's not something we're doing in pre-season, but we do do hop testing. So like a lot of teams now, I guess, like our pre-season testing, it's not to try and reduce the risk of injury. It's more outcome measures based. So we look extensively at hop testing so we obviously did single leg hop triple hop crossover hops with all the players Uh, we did do some strength stuff with the handheld dynamometer Um, but again these are all outcome measures that can be used for or sorry baseline measurements that can be used for when the player gets injured can we get them back to the pre-season baseline so that's what we did in pre-season so as well as all this, this fitness and strength and sports science stuff we did Hot testing was a big one and quality of movement testing. So we did the Quasals, tuck jump, and single leg squat. And again, these were for if the player has a catastrophic knee injury, we need to get him back to this level. So I remember with this player, his hop testing, right and left were equal. Um, and they were actually the highest in the whole squad. But his Quasals testing, which is marked 0 to 10, uh, for tuck jump and uh, single leg squat to box. Again, this is in the Harrington paper. I think he scored three for his single leg squat on his injured side and maybe two on his right. So a very slight difference. And I think there was the, during the tuck jump, so during the tuck jump, you're looking at soft, quiet landing, knee valgus. Thighs reaching parallel, this sort of stuff. And I'm pretty sure he got a zero for that. But for the single leg squat, which obviously um, control, he had a little bit of valgus on his left. Um, But again, he's only scoring three out of ten. So if there's ten criteria to hit, your sevens to tens are your your boys who look in real trouble. Um, And your zero to threes are, are less risk. Um, but there wasn't much difference between his left knee and, the, and his right knee. And he certainly never had any previous knee injuries in his whole career. Um, so, yeah, maybe that contributed to no difference, really. Yeah.
0: And you, and you mentioned a little bit there about the, the exit criteria, and that's something I wanted to ask you about as well. So you put on the video um, a few of the exercises he was doing. It was obviously based on the the exit criteria and what you guys had designed towards the back end of the programme. And were all those, um, those markers something that you decided on from previous tests or was it just something that you um, targeted when he got injured?
1: So the exit criteria that we had for the player was all from the task-based rehab protocol, which is Harrington's perfect. And we deleted a couple and added our couple. So it's, it's basically a modified version um, of the Harrington paper, what we chose. And so let me I'm just trying to bring it up just to refresh my memory um, what yeah, the next exit criteria was. But because of the testing we had done, we were able to add that into to his exit criteria. Yeah. We, Uh, so aggressive limb loading was all about neuromuscular control. So doing the SEBT, um, single leg squat, drop jump, took jump test. Uh, single leg press was a big one. Um, so we're looking, I'm, I'm sure you've heard it before, like one and a half times body weight times 10 reps, zero to 90 degrees before you start running. I know not a lot of people need that, and a lot of people can't do that when they're fit. But for us, it was a criteria to say, well, you weren't. You may not have been strong enough. Then we need to get you strong enough now, um, and that was the rationale for, for that exit criteria. And then, along with other muscle work capacity tests, or so glutes, hamstrings, calves, uh, before progressing him onto running. Um, so again, everything was reverse engineered. So for the single leg press, it was nowhere near 120 kilos uh, times ten initially, but we just worked with the blood flow restriction and then built him up um, gradually, um, and then he achieved it.
0: Because so I think that's a, an approach that's, I don't know um, when it's sort of changed, but I think recently there's more and more physios and S&C coaches looking at an injury as, a, as an opportunity to try and get the player in a better physical condition than what they were in beforehand, isn't it? So that's what you're saying with this player, is that the strength testing, um, you weren't able to necessarily push it too much because of the, obviously, being in season and the load that they go through in the season. But this was an opportunity to drive it up and hopefully prevent previous inju- um, future injury.
1: Yeah, that, and that was the whole thing. Because this player was determined to, to return at six months, and there's a risk associated with returning prior to nine months or so there's an increased risk of injury, we had to make sure that it was strong enough to cope with those demands if he was going to come back before nine months. Um, so that's why we were so strict with the criteria. Um, and basically it all comes down to this macro cycle which we initially started so we were looking at obviously the phases of rehab and then under that we had specific knee rehab so it'd be defined as post op rehab, blood flow restriction training, strength hypertrophy and then strength training, maximum strength, strength power. And then we had his return to running, which his return to or is sprinting was the very start of that was gait education, then aqua jogging, um and then pool and running mechanics then running mechanics in the gym, and a gradual progression to introduction to running. And then we had different uh, prescriptions for load tolerance, aerobic conditioning, uh, MAS runs, speed prep. And yeah, like I said, we just reverse engineered everything and took it down to its most simplest form and then progressed from there. Um, And if it was able to achieve criteria before what we expected, then his return-to-train date was brought forward, um, and that was very motivating for him to stay on course and, and to work as hard as possible.
0: And on one of the running progression drills, and I think it was like a, a change of direction drill, you had on the video that it was on, on 4G, yeah. and I just wanted to ask, was that, was that a purposeful like progression? Like, was it a starting on 4G and then going to grass, or was it a case of going grass, then 4G, or was it just a case of that was what was available?
1: It was a. It was a, it was a, it was a couple of reasons behind it. First of all, we could have gone out to, to the grass, but I've got a big thing of, like, reducing fear of injury. So he obviously injured his knee on, um, on AstroTek on, on a 4G pitch. So he had this thing, he had it in his head that that was the reason he injured his ACL. Now there's no way of, of yeah. confirming or denying that, but that is a huge thing in Scottish football with the amount of four G pitches that we have. I know there's a petition I think going on with the uh who is it now? The Scottish Players Association there kind of demanding that um the in the SPL there shouldn't be four G pitches. Um so, from my point of view, it was just reducing that fear and anxiety about returning to 4G. So, we obviously have a 4G track at our stadium. So, because he's not doing any change of direction, he's not doing any cutting, I'm not doing anything reactive with him. It was just a gentle introduction to running uh, some lateral footwork, some linear footwork, stuff like that. So, it's about breaking down that barrier as so though you can train on 4G, like, especially in Aberdeen. <laughs> Like three months of our season is on 4G during the winter um, just because of the weather. So if he was going to avoid 4G for the rest of his career, he wouldn't have much of a career up in Aberdeen. Um, so oh, yeah. it was it was more about just reducing that fear. Um, and that's why we started on that and then obviously progressed him onto grass and stuff like that.
0: Because we we speak to a lot of players and I suppose it is um, more based in Scotland, but then also like semi-pro level players. And they talk a lot about not being able to, maybe not being able to train on 4G or not being able to play uh, during games that are on 4G. So what are some things that if you were to speak to players and they said that to you, obviously that... That, like you said, it can affect careers and where they are going to be playing. If they if they are going to be able to play or be available. So, what would be some things that you target with those sort of players?
1: Well, the thing is, there's there's research. The kind of UEFA stuff, the UEFA studies suggest there's no difference between injuries on 4G pitches and injuries on, on grass pitches. Now, from physio point of view, working on ball, 3, 4G and in grass you do see differences as well as the way the game's played it's obviously massively different but we see different injuries come on 4g and that's usually joint related so you usually get joint related issues on on the harder surface and that's just that's that's basic knowledge really like if you play on a harder surface your ankles are going to be a bit sore your knees are going to be a little bit sore and your hips are going to be a little bit sore um but i've not seen a increased amount of acl injuries compared on the 4g compared to grass however much this player wanted to convince me um i've just not seen it i'm not and maybe in 10 years time there'll be research that says there is an increased risk of of injury on a 4g pitch but for me working on it every day and and grass on every other day or whatever it is whatever time period of the season we're in um you just tend to have more residual symptoms from a 4G so lads are a little bit stiffer um, especially with the change from grass to 4G lads are a bit stiffer usually after after training on 4G the issue with some of the 4G pitches in the SPL is that they're not pristine 4G they're used to support the community so they're being used every day for the academies um, and for football in the community so it's not like the first team just go on there on a match day and it's this brilliantly brilliantly laid 4G pitch the pitches get ruined quite quickly because of overuse and, and that's another thing I think the players have but any any player who comes up from England it is something I mention and in, in ask about in, in the medical because they're just not used to it they may have played on it in academies but a lot of them aren't used to playing on 4G especially competitive league matches so that is usually a change for the English lads coming up
0: And to to sort of touch on like surface based work and the changing surface, you on the video you were progressing some of the the neuromuscular control stuff and the and your jump progressions with some landing on like the um, the fat pads, weren't you? And changing the emphasis of when they were landing, you were you were adding some external uh, stimulus to it as well. So can you just touch on that?
1: Yeah. So ah obviously neuromuscular control is is huge for acl injuries and especially when we've got this ligament which is healing as a ligament neuromuscular control is huge so we started in the gym um and used the paper by meyer et al 2008 so that's truck and hip control neuromuscular training for the prevention of knee joint injury and that paper is based on on female athletes obviously because there's much greater uh, injury risk for females but we've basically used that for for our injury prevention for acl injuries but especially for our rehabilitation of acl injuries so it starts uh, very basic um and that's just hopping from double leg hops lateral and linear like you say onto the airx and then you progress to single leg um, then you progress to the BOSU ball, ball. This is all gym-based neuromuscular control, and then you kind of throw perturbation. So whether it's throwing, catching a tennis ball, and um, avoiding catching a tennis ball, and doing little volleys on the air, and this is all NMC stuff. And SNC probably look at it and think, "What are you doing?" But it's crucial for the initial part prior to doing your plyometric stuff on the grass. We want good control of the knee and. And using the ARX and the Borsu so and external perturbations via volleys or tennis balls are actually pushing the player, um, I think, help with neuromuscular control. Um, so that's what we did. Yeah, we used the ARX and we did hop holds onto the ARX, we did lateral hop holds, 180 degrees hops, um, and it was just a gradual progression through the phases. And then once he's completed that, you're then doing kind of cross hops and really reactive hopping in the gym before progressing onto the grass then, and and that then becomes more plyometric. So we'd kind of start with double leg, low hurdle hop catches, and we'd do that linearly and then laterally, then progress to a higher hurdle, but still just doing catches. It's probably not true plyometric, but then we'd introduce the low hurdle and do reactive linear and lateral jumps, and a bigger hurdle, reactive ones, and then we'd be looking at um, single leg catches over a small hurdle and then a bigger hurdle, and then reactive again with the single leg on a bigger hurdle, and then you're repeating all the above, all the above with external perturbations, and that's why, tried to, why I tried to fit it all into the video, because you just see the, the progressions that way, um, because when he's jumping up for a header, He's getting barged off the centre forward and his, his left leg, is, his left knee is going to have to extend a lot of force uh, to control that landing. And that was the whole emphasis of his neuromuscular control and his and his plyo progressions.
0: And you also added some, um, you talked about like position specific work as well. So I think you said he's a centre half, isn't he? Left, left side of centre half.
1: Yeah. So position, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. Left side, center half. So he's played left back when we're playing against a quick winger, and if there's no quick wingers, then he'll play center half. That's how it's traditionally been used. I think. Yeah.
0: So with that, what were some of the key movements that you um, sort of highlighted that he'd have to complete within a game? Because I know you showed some of it on the video as well.
1: Sure. so This was actually where we involved the coaches a little, um, and which are obviously a huge part of the decision-making process of return to play. But we also use our technical coaches for this position-specific work because however much I love football and and I've played it in the past and stuff, I've never been a professional centre-half. So we spoke to, to some of the coaching staff and looked at the movements, what they wanted. And a lot of it is turning around and running back to your goal and then clearing the ball and then running back to your goal. So we did a lot of that. It doesn't sound kind of Manchester City-esque in terms of pulling out and receiving the ball and then playing it forwards. A lot of the work that the centre-house do in the SPL is recovering <laughs> balls over the top and then playing it forwards. So we worked a lot of that and, and we just modified Hoff circuits to, to enable him to do that. So he'd progress from jumping on a header to then turning and sprinting and recovering for a ball um, to then doing defending drills like reactive defending drills where he'd have to do some fast feet, get past someone, badge past somebody with a rugby pad and then he'd try and defend a shot and try and make a collision to prevent a goal um, so for the final two months, because he made such rapid progress he was able to do that really early on and I'm sure if I had a striker, I'd be doing much more movement based in terms of finishing drills and how you curve your runs and stuff. But for him, it was lots of forwards, linear running, turn around and run the other way, receive the, retrieve the ball, pump it forward. Um, because that's what he does on a match day traditionally. Um, but with lots of collisions as well. So the rugby pad was really useful for that and just barging and barging him. um, and that obviously creates confidence with his knee that he can cope with that. And to
0: go right to the to the back end of the um, the protocol and touch on some, I suppose the prehab work, the the stuff you like in the SNC program that you would then uh, carry out with this player, but also the other players. So, what would you try and include as part of like an ACL prehab? Um, program or what things would you look for to add into a program to hopefully prevent ACL injuries?
1: Yeah, I mean it's really difficult because we don't have a we don't have the staff to provide a formal prehab session prior to training. Um, so we're, we're very lucky in that we have a really good gym session. And and our ethos in terms of injury prevention isn't one or two small exercises that we're doing a circuit on a Tuesday. We lift. Really heavy using a hex bar because it's kind of minimal technique used uh, and you can get some real weight in it. Um, we use we do use some pre exercise, so Nod, it's Copenhagen's, one that's exercises that have been proven to reduce the risk of injury. Um, but then we also get them to run really fast as well, and that's something Kirk of the SNC coach has, has had for years at Aberdeen that on a Thursday, similar to other clubs I'm sure we get them to hit the max velocity and that's what our pre is it's it's lifting heavy and and running fast and we do that as much as possible um there are periods in the season where we can't do that especially in December I think December we played nine matches so it was almost impossible to do that and, and SNC was all about protection uh during December and in January, February, because of the backlog of games, um, but usually we try and go heavy in the gym and run fast on a Thursday, and that's our that's our ethos for injury prevention. In terms of ACL specific, we do work with players who we've highlighted maybe from the quasals testing in pre season, and we make give them control work to practice either in the gym during the gym session or prior to training. Plus, there's lads who have had previous knee injuries, so we do the same with them. We give them control work exercises to do. Um, but in terms of pre-ab ACL, what do we do for specific exercise around it? ACL? We we don't do them. We just lift heavy and run fast. and um, We make sure they move well. Um, and the boys who don't move well during testing, we work with them much closer than we would for everybody
0: And what about more specifically with the case of the player we've been talking about What what's his sort of focus is he just going back into that team programme now or has he got specific focuses that you're carrying carrying um, on to, to work through with him
1: yeah, I mean, so his SNC product, you're right, is slightly different because he's now, what are we now, we're in February, so he'll, uh, well, March, now, so he's seven months now, I think, so he returned to to training in just less than five months, um, and he returned to friendly action um, in, I think it was just over five months, so he had a month's full training, Um and then took part in a game, and he actually got shipped out on loan on deadline day. So he's he's not played a competitive game for ourselves, um, but we work closely with with him and what he's supposed to be doing outside of the club. So um, he does his his traditional stuff, so which is his hex bar and he runs fast. But he also does lots of quad strength because we know that quads sh- are a lack of quad strength increases the risk of, of re-injury. So although his IKD testing prior to return to play, his right equaled his left, we still want to maintain that. So he's still, basically how we've planned it is that depending on the minutes the players will determine what exercises it does. But at the minute it's playing 90 minutes, week in, week out for his loan club. So he'll do one big posterior train strength exercise. they um, will do one heavy anterior chain uh, exercises um, which is slightly different to, to everybody else
0: and then also I just wanted to, to wrap it up really with, because you spoke at the very start of the episode about um, him not drinking, being teetotal and that being uh, I, I, I suppose like a, a positive in terms of his recovery well five months is a, is a rapid turnaround and I'm sure there's many players out there have been through this sort of injury and they've, they've been nine months plus. So, what, what are the other factors you see as as being so, as his fast turnaround?
1: It was, in my opinion, it was a combination of everything. Um, it was the correct surgery for him. It was an isolated ACL tear. He didn't have any uh, chondral damage. He didn't tear his MCL. He didn't tear his meniscus. So, we were able to to get him the surgery needed quickly um he was obviously super super motivated we as a medical staff were were super motivated to to try to help him out as much as possible like working with him one-to-one was almost my my full-time job for the last three months i injured my shoulder myself so i was i was working with him really closely um but as a it was it wasn't just me it was it was adam the other physio it was kirk of the snc and he was getting it from all angles and um yeah how do you speed up acl rehab time i think it's it has to come from the athlete primarily um because we could give the best rehab program which we'd ever which we've ever given which is i think what we did and um, we worked hard on it and we changed it and modified it whenever possible um, but if the player doesn't give 100% all in, does everything he can without questioning and he did things he didn't want to without question, so he was doing morning afternoon sessions um, first in last out, just to be ready um, or to enable him to to have this quick return to play um, he questioned us a lot, don't get me wrong, he questioned why he was doing things um, but in one thing throughout his rehab, what I noticed, he never complained once. He never said in an aggressive or kind of questioning manner, "Why am I doing this?" As, as though he was frustrated. It was always a conservative, conservative approaches. Why am I doing this? What's this going to do to me? Um, yeah. Whereas you see many players. I'm, I'm sure you've seen many players who who skip reps who rush through rehabs or take too long during rehabs um or doing exercises should I say. Um he did everything we asked to the letter. Um not only kind of in the gym but at home as well. He was eating right, he was drinking right, he was sleeping right, that was a huge thing as well, which we made him which we made clear for him. Um but yeah, that's that's about it, I think. Just having a, a good plan, a good athlete and a good surgeon um, yeah that was kind of how we did it anyway
0: I suppose it all just ties, ties into his mindset with it as well isn't it because for him to be to take that approach of not being beaten and working and, and questioning things is, I think is a good thing for players as well isn't it because they understand it more rather than just sort of ticking along with it they're actually getting to grips with why they are doing it and like you said he still carried it out he just wanted to know why
1: Absolutely, and wanted to know why for the right reasons as well, like how does that get into the next part of his criteria how does that push him on, how does that bring that estimated time frame of six months to less than five months and, and that's, what we're, that's what he was able to do
0: Awesome well I think that information there, mate, is absolutely quality and we will, we'll tie the videos in um, so the guys can go and watch that yeah. and they'll get a really good overview of what you're talking about on this as well, so I do recommend to go and watch that. Where can the guys follow you?
1: Where's the best place to, if they've got questions, where can they get in touch? Um, Twitter, I guess, uh, Facebook and Instagram are, are just personal and private stuff, but it's basically it's just booze and, and gin and stuff like that. So, but Twitter <laughs> that is the main one for anything medical or physio or, or SNC. I, I try, I do try to post stuff, but. Um, I found working first team as I've been able to put out less and less recently just because it's so busy but I do try to retweet good quality information um, and obviously I've got a couple of videos on there from previous re I've done but yeah if anyone does have any questions about it or, or even like ideas of how they might have done things better like I love hearing that that's the reason I put it out I, I don't put it out to kind of like myself in glory is literally to to get feedback and to for people to critique it and I remember when I put the hamstring out I had loads of positive feedback but I was really craving someone to critique it and someone better than me to question it and say why have you done this maybe you could have tried this and I did have a couple of people doing that and and I learned so much from it and that's why I tried to to share information so that people can obviously learn from it and and then you get other people jumping in and and I love that side of learning um, where you're learning from mistakes or you're learning from other experiences and stuff like that. So, yeah, if you do see the video and you've got questions about it and you've got critiques and even on this podcast, please get in touch and, and tell me where I'm going wrong or what they should do or what they would do. And because that's a great way of learning for me.
0: Oh, that's quality. What's your Twitter handle, mate?
1: Eh? Uh, I think it's just Tony Tompos PT. Um I think I put that ages ago it's obviously not personal training it's meant to be a physiotherapist so at Tony Tompos PT um, is where I'm on so yeah just just get in touch
0: that's awesome I'll put it on when we release it on Twitter and that's so that logo out so the guys can follow you and uh, get in touch but thanks a lot for uh, doing this mate I know I know it was a late uh, return home last night after your big win so I wish you all the best for the rest of the season
1: no worries mate thanks for getting in touch and great work with the podcast I've really enjoyed listening to the last few and looking forward to see what you've got coming up as well so well done Paul no worries top man I'll uh, speak to you soon cheers mate To
0: thank you to Tony for giving up his time and also giving a great insight into what they do up there at Aberdeen in terms of the approach they take through rehab it was such a comprehensive um, explanation of how they go about it from Tony it was really good for him to, to give such good insight and if you haven't done already go and check the video out I think he has broken it down into a number of different videos on Twitter as well but it really does um, back up a lot of the work and it makes it very visual you can see exactly what they were doing and um, you'll see a lot of the work that Tony explained in the podcast as well so go and check that out you can follow t- follow Tony on Twitter he's at Tony uh, Tompos P.T. So T O N Y T O M P O S and then P.T. I think some of the biggest takeaways for me were, the, were where he we talked about player mindset. So how we kept the player on track. I think it's very easy for players to go into sort of a depression in this sort of inju- um, in, with this sort of injury, and it's really important for whichever practitioner is working with them to keep them on the right track. And that was obviously a big part of what Tony did and a big role that he played. And then also the player-led approach. So it wasn't just a case of prescribing work for the player. Tony was in constant communication with the player, trying to find the best way possible of keeping him motivated, keeping him on track. And looking from the outside, I think that was probably a big part of why they were able to get the player back so quick. And then I think it was also great for it to hear him talk about the exit criteria that he was looking for from each phase and especially towards the back end of the um, the rehab. A lot of players want to get back playing as soon as they feel sharp enough to do so, but I think it's really important for practitioners to use their experience and um, actually put some exit criteria in place for players to hit before they do get back playing. So I think it was this was a really in depth episode, and I think there was some great information there from Tony. So please. Give us some feedback on the episode and share it with as many people as possible. You might know um, teammates that are going through an injury like this right now, so it'll be a great episode for them to listen to. There might be physios out there working with players um, that are going through ACL or, or other extreme in- injuries as well throughout a season. And then also just try and share it with as many people as possible. I think it's, there's some top information, so I do want to get this out there. As always, please subscribe to the podcast as well. And if you could just take a couple of minutes out of your day, just head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and just give us a little bit of feedback on which episode you've enjoyed the most. It might be this one with Tony. It it might be one of the previous episodes, but what you took from that episode and which was the one you enjoyed the most. I would really appreciate that. Um, As always, massive thank you again for listening. Really do appreciate every single one of you who listens to the podcast. Um, I'll speak to you again next week.